Hello again. Welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich. If you'd like to contact me, the email address, Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, at chartproductions.com. On Twitter, it's at Jordan WBZ. Facebook is simply Jordan Rich Show. Welcome to Conversation with People of Passion. My guest today is Stephen Karadianis, an accomplished musician, conductor, composer, and broadcaster. Now in his 26th season as conductor and music director of the Plymouth Philharmonic Orchestra in America's hometown, Plymouth, Mass. Now, this is also his 16th season conducting the New England Conservatory Youth Symphony, leading concerts in Boston's most prestigious concert venues, and in past tours of Italy, Greece, Costa Rica, Eastern Europe, Ireland, and Spain. For many years, he's been the understudy conductor for the Boston Pops Orchestra, made his debut conducting the Pops and Symphony Hall in December of 2016. Stephen recently stepped down from leading Masterworks Chorale after a decade, conducting choral orchestral masterworks in Harvard University's Sanders Theater. Stephen and I did dozens of late-night radio shows focusing on the love and lasting legacy of classical music. I've even had the honor of performing with him and the Plymouth Phil Orchestra as a narrator at Christmas time. He is respected, admired, and loved, leading his orchestra and his life with grace and artistry. Stephen Karadianos, maestro. Let's go on, Mike. How many nights did we spend together, very late nights, on the radio, talking about classical music and blowing up the phone line, Stephen? I didn't know where you were going with that sentence. I didn't know either, first, quite frankly. First I need I need a conductor to <laughs> rein me in. No, I, seriously, we, we've known each other for a long time and we have. have shared microphone time together, and it's been a great, great experience. And now you're back. Welcome. Thank you, Jordan. I've missed you, and this is just a great way to get back together. Let's remind people about where you are right now, musically, professionally, because you've had so many events with so many orchestras. Where are you right now? I have just concluded my 25th season leading the Plymouth Philharmonic, which is a fully professional orchestra on uh, the historic South Shore of Boston. I am also... And I'm, and by the way, and continuing. So there's no oh, this goodbye. Is, this, this is, is no your goodbye. your gig. You're this there. is my gig, and 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 also I am the music director conductor of the New England Conservatory Youth Symphony, which is a real fine training ensemble at NEC. And um, since 2008, a regular understudy conductor for the Boston Pops, and that's it, that's been a privilege to be in such close contact with such great musicians and a great operation, as you know. Indeed, uh, the, the the operation of the Boston Pops had a privilege of guest conducting them a few years ago for their holiday pops. Um, up until several years ago, I was also the music director of Masterworks Chorale, great choral orchestral organization in Boston. And um, other than that, uh, it's whoever wants me. I go, <laughs> I, I guest conduct, I compose. I'm, I'm writing more now these days than ever, but I have a few uh, pieces that have legs, as they say, get a lot of performances from various orchestras. In music, did you start out thinking, I'd like to conduct, or was it performing first and foremost? Uh, conducting, at least for me, was never in the picture early mm-hmm. on. Uh, I did a lot of things. I played a lot of different instruments. I liked to sing. I also did theater. Uh, all of that got me really through high school. Somewhere, somehow, because I do remember this, in my senior year in high school, we had a great uh, concert band. And our director, our teacher, was sick one day. And there was a substitute teacher. And the substitute teacher came in and wanted to do well, but didn't know any of the music. And we were a band that loved to play together because we had this director that really inspired us. And 
we kept on asking this person, can we please do this piece and that piece? I don't know any of these things. Why don't one of you conduct? <laughs> because since you know it, I don't. And I don't know why they all looked at me. So I do have a recollection of getting, as a, as a senior in high school, in front of my whole, maybe mm. junior, I, I can't recall, but I got in front of the whole band to just lead. And, and, and I, that probably came not because I had aspirations to, to be a conductor, but I probably, even at that time, had, um, was identified as one of probably the stronger musicians mm. in the group, as well as maybe a personality that could take the, the heat. Just a math question. With the number of orchestras and, and musical organizations, there aren't hundreds of thousands of them. I wonder how many people are out there looking for conductor jobs right now. How many orchestras are saying, sorry, we, we're good for the next 30 years? I mean, I'm just curious. It is a numbers it, game. And there are far more conductors that being churned out at musicals across the country that than there are ensembles. Point. And so you have, to, you have to cherish what you have. Um, I know, uh, I, I don't think it's a bad thing to be ambitious, I mean, in terms of wanting more, but I never think of wanting more as a way of devaluing mm. what I have now. Mm. Uh, because what I have is, I know people give their left arm, literally, to have the orchestras that I have. Mm. Uh, because the, the opportunities are so, are, are so far few and far between. Mm -hmm. I, I'll share with you a story that just came up to my head as we were talking. Conductor I've known for a long time, um, who who, uh, who he's still around, but he's he's quite ill. Um, a while back, we were via email going back and forth about about conducting Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and how you know he he as just a sort of microcosm of this orchestral world felt kind of insignificant about uh, conducting Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And I said, wait a second, insignificant? Who are you kidding? Let's do, let's play the numbers. So how many orchestras are there in this country right now? How many orchestras have there been in this country the past couple of centuries? Not many, by the way, when you start going back a century. Um, now, how many conductors mm. in all of humanity have actually had the privilege to conduct Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? I mean, it's it's not even a drop in the bucket. Quite a perspective. And, and when you think about yeah. that, you think about the privilege it is mm. to be uh, um, not on the podium making music, but be, being given the privilege of being surrounded by such quality artists and people to be a part of something extraordinary. Well, how do you define the conductor's role? Because we were talking uh, in another instance about the the persona, and sometimes it's the media-driven persona of the maestro and all that. I've seen you and others in action, and it's a full-time job, and it's a lot more than just what we see up there in tails and tie. Let's talk a little bit about that. What What's involved? No, no, no. I first have to go back and, and, and say, you know, you, you brought up this other image for me where... What people see the conductors do is probably the least complicated. It's everything that happens before, whether it's studying, uh, preparing the parts, fundraising, I was gonna all say. of that. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so important. So I, I, I can't yeah. tell you how many people who, well-meaning as they are, come up to me and say, oh, I've seen what you do for a living. I can do that. <laughs> I go, please be, 
here, be my guest. But you have to take all of it. Yeah. So, so, um, but in terms of, of, it takes a lot of personalities. Um, I, I think I did mention before th this book called The Composer's Advocate, uh, written by Eric Leinsdorf, a former uh, uh, conductor of the Boston Symphony. And I was taught a half-truth about this whole process. Here is the half-truth, is that we as the composer's advocate, we are trying to recreate the artist, and the, and the creative artist here is the composer, so we are trying to, we are the advocate for the composer. Um, it is our job as conductors to learn the music as best as we can, every note, every passage, every phrase. Uh, it is our job to also understand the circumstances uh, by which the, the music was written, the social history, the social context, the acoustic, all of it affects how you will interpret the music and teach the music. And, and the idea is, if that is the ideal, that we're always striving for the ideal. And I'll tell you why I say that's the half-truth, because that is the truth, that is the goal. But if you keep that as an absolute, as some people came up to me and said, you know, I never do Mozart with kids because they can never do it right. Mm. And isn't that a crime to say mm. you're not going to give kids Mozart because they can't do it right? So here's the other half-truth that I've added. And this is what I teach when people ask me. So part one is learn the music as best as you can, you know, the notes, context, all of that, part one. Part two, given your resources, how close can you get to that ideal? So resources, level of musician, instrumentation, acoustic, right? I mean, if I had eight-year-old kazoo players who wanted to at least learn something about Mozart. I could teach them because given the resources I have, mm. how close can I get to that ideal? I like that because it's the most generous way of talking about what we have to do because it, this means nothing to us if we can't share it. Mm -hmm. And if you only share it with the strongest, power, powerful uh, musicians who can play it, then you're missing out on most of God's creation, right? One of the things that we did for many, many evenings together on the radio was share with our audience classical music that had a, a modern day usage, whether it be a TV theme or uh, introducing a, an Olympic event or so. And we realized, well, you and I knew this, but the audience was really hep to the idea that this music is not just old and dusty and is played in concert halls, but is part of our lives. This love affair that we have with classical music, maybe it's not as obvious to some, but it, it is real, isn't it? I, I uh, First of all, yes, because it, it becomes somehow, when it's used in popular culture, the soundtrack of our lives. I know that's a sort of a hmm. kitschy way of saying it, but it's true. But um, I try as often as possible to to take barriers away from access to what I do. And I realized that one barrier is the label classical. Mm. And I can recall in my early years with the Plymouth Philharmonic, we had a, a, a board retreat for our board of directors on a Saturday afternoon. And um, as much as I can, I try to be part of the board and giving them my, 
my perspective on how some things might be able to go on the business side of things. But sometimes I, I step out of the room because I feel that the board needs to own the business. And sometimes it, they can be more open to discuss things when I'm not in the room. And, I, and we, we try to create that as well. And this particular uh, retreat, I, am, I recall being in this corridor of this facility where we were having the retreat, just waiting until they called me back in. And one of our board members, who was not affluent, but gave so much of his time and his treasure to us. And I asked this person, when did you come to, to love classical music? And he snapped at me and he goes, oh, I'm convinced I don't like classical music. I just like what the orchestra does. And a light bulb, poof, top of my head. I said, ah. So we don't talk about classical music. Even Leonard Bernstein in one of his great uh, young people's concerts, uh, one theme was, you know, you know, why do we call it classical or, you know, is there a better name for it? Or, mm. I actually have a book at home of all the scripts from those TV shows and I love to look back oh. at that and, and get some ideas. Uh, but, but uh, you know, classical is a misnomer because uh, classical defines a particular period of time, the Baroque era, the Viennese classical period, the Romantic era. So if you call it classical, it's, it's not accurate because it's much more broad reaching, this, this Western European art music that we all call classical. What we try to do with the Plymouth Philharmonic and most everything that we do, we're not talking, we don't put a label on classical music, but we talk about the experience how you're going to feel, how this might change you if you, if, if you allow yourself uh, this, this experience. So I, I really find myself in the, uh, there are all these E's, um, education, enlightenment. I don't think the word entertainment is a dirty word in classical Agreed. music. Because we are in the entertainment business. Agreed. Not all art is entertaining, but there's some entertainment thing that, that can be art and vice versa. You, you, you can create a situation where at the end of the whole process, if you know your audience, you can get them to come back. Well, the Plymouth Philharmonic is such a joyous event because you've got classical music. I'll use the term now. Okay. But uh, like the Boston Pops, you introduce popular songs, standards during the holiday season. It's Christmas. It's universally acceptable to everybody, ultimately. You break down all these these preconceived notions that one has to be stuffy when it comes to this. It's not stuffy at all. And it makes the quote-unquote classics seem even more uh, approachable when you're, you're sharing with us something by Richard Rogers, just as you shared with us something by Berlioz or Brahms. So, again, the idea of experience, you know, uh, and, and uh, actually one part of the business— there are a lot of these kind of crossover concerts you've heard some orchestras and other organizations do, you know, a little pops, a little classical, a little whatever it is. But the industry has proven that that is incorrect in that um, you have audiences who like this, let's call it classical, symphonic repertoire. You have folks who like the pop stuff. You you have folks who, who really enjoy the either outreach, family concerts, education concerts, that kind of thing. Um, and it basically, if you want to get the most people, you have to offer the most diversity of your products. So that's why we have these symphonic classical concerts. That's why we have these pops concerts. That's why we have these education concerts. We're throwing the broadest net out possible. By the way, um, I also learned early on that excellence is not enough. And 
and, and I know every time I start off with that, people go, what do you mean? Ex everything has to be excellence. We have to justify our existence, our relevance as, as, as an artistic organization, not just at the concerts that we give. We have to justify our relevance between concerts. What are we doing between concerts to justify why we're there? So that's why we're in the schools, we're in senior centers, we're, we're, um, we're finding ways to make more relationships. You know, uh, yeah, this fundraising, I'd rather call it friendraising, you know, that we're, we're making relationships. Oh, I love that. That's great. And, yeah. and then those relationships bear fruit as long as you're genuine about maintaining those relationships. And that speaks to the role of somebody who's a music director like yourself. It's so much more than just getting up there. And by the way, the person who suggested that's easy to uh, hold the uh -huh. baton or the, uh, and to keep the beat and to keep the musicians in check, good luck. I mean, I, I've watched Danny Cade fake it and have fun with it. He actually, he knew what he was doing. He was good, actually. He was actually quite good. But I know a nice treat is to have the president of some corporation and they made a nice donation conduct uh, Stars and Stripes or something. The orchestra, they're on automatic pilot at that point. But it's it's really a beautiful thing to see it all coalesce, to see it all come together. And for those people who have not had the joy of or the experience of being in a concert hall, mm -hmm. you're in Memorial Hall in Plymouth, one of the oldest in the country. Nothing, nothing takes the place of being in the presence of live music, that kind of music, in my humble opinion. Talk a little bit about acoustics and how it does matter. Uh and more broadly, the live experience. The live experience. Okay. So because uh, we talk about this all the time, uh, an old friend of mine, conductor friend, I stole this line when I heard it because it's absolutely true. Here's a metaphor that people will understand. He says, you know, listening to recorded music is kind of like getting a kiss over the telephone. <laughs> I like it. You know, you get the message, yeah. but you're missing a whole lot. Yes. You know? and, 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 and it's the same thing where if, if you actually think of the live concert hall experience, much like being in your theater, you're seeing live mm. drama mm. where you, you have all of these like-minded individuals focused on something really important, uh, transformative, and they're all, you know, uh, synced in on something that's happening. Uh, uh, you know, we, we talk about one of the iconic pieces of music, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. When you hear it, and I'm, I'm sorry, I've heard this, when you hear it recorded like in an elevator, it has nothing to do with the experience that when you're in a live concert hall and you see 50, 60, 70, 100 musicians throwing themselves into this and that goes on for seven or eight minutes. And, and the intensity at edge of your seat, not mm. just playing, but listening, mm. you can't get that on a recording. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And, and boy, you talk about the elevator. There's so many examples of, of wallpaper sound that we, we hear and don't really pay attention to, but you're there in a particular concert venue, let's just say with the Plymouth Phil, and you are just wrapped. I mean, I don't care. Uh, that's R-A-P-T, by the way. I don't care who you are. It's pretty hard not to just fall into this experience. I have a couple of fun questions for you. One is, do you have any superstitions uh, prior to going on stage? Do you wear the same tie? Uh, do you have a, a favorite baton? Uh, do you walk, uh, like in baseball, they cross over the line, they don't step on the line. Do you have anything that you do before a performance? No one's ever asked me that question. I've, I've had a lot of questions. So that's the first time. 
Superstition? No. Really, no. Okay. I, I do have a pattern that I know works for me. Okay. But, but, but also involves, um, I mean, mechanical things. Kind of like uh, I always make sure, no matter what the big concert is, I go through every page of everything I'm conducting one more time. Why? Mm. For the sheer mechanics, sometimes a page will stick and it'll stick in the wrong place. And you, you know, and, and by the way, any conductor worth their salt, they're not up there reading music. You can't read that music. I mean, if you look at a conductor's score and you might see 17 or 21 different lines of music all right. going around, and, and those are all the instruments, right? So I can't speak for anybody else. I can speak for myself and people I know. It's more like it's an outline. You know, so I'll, I'll be I'll, I'll I'll be leading and all that, and I'll look down where we are. I say, oh, okay, great, that's coming up, and then I'll turn the next page because I I know all mm. of that stuff. So so, uh, but sometimes when I'll take a look, and this has happened before, so I guess I've gotten to that pattern of just going through all the pages where you turn the page and more than one page goes, and you look down and for that singular second of panic. We're not supposed to be there. Did we already do that? Uh-uh. You know, so, so, so I have, and by, by the way, this is years ago. This clearly has happened to me. I just do it all the time. I, that's I your always, that is, so that's not pre -game, superstition. That pre -game is my pregame. I actually okay. go through every page and, and our stage manager knows, please don't grab my scores before 10 minutes before the show because that is when I'm going through every page one more time. I don't consider that superstition. I consider that a good habit to have. And, you know, uh, and it gets you, warm. Your hands get a little yeah. Clammy and all that, and you can stick a page. You know, you just don't want to do this. The next question isn't fair because you're the kind of guy, as I am, everything can be a highlight. You have a highlight coming up tomorrow and the next day. But there have been some experiences, I know, overseas and, and so forth, that have to be pretty special that stand out. Just give us one example. Maybe it's where you were or who you were working with or any of that kind of stuff. Anything come to mind? I, I'll, I'll, first of all, I'll give you the pat answer that I, I will include that now in, in, in my arsenal of pat answers. Because people, when they normally ask me, who's your favorite composer, or what is your favorite genre of music? My pat answer is an honest one, which is why I don't, which is why I don't mind giving it. And that is the one I'm doing next. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, I am so immersed mm. in, in, um, that music and that period and those musicians and, and, and that's all I can think of. And then after that, go on to the next thing. So as we are recording this, I'm telling you now, mm -hmm. a concert that I conducted a couple of nights ago, I still have all of these melodies going through my head. I and it was it. Vivaldi's Four Seasons oh. and Anna Kleinenach music and uh, the third Brandenburg and Puccini's gorgeous chrysanthemums, which few people know. Uh, we did this outdoor concert uh, in this beautiful um, conservation area called World's End. And we did an outdoor concert just a few nights ago. Uh, and it was an extraordinary an extraordinary evening of music making, and I can't get that out of my soul. Well, and yet I'm still now working on my next program. That's when I said highlights for you occur every day, perhaps, or every couple of days when you're investigating a new piece or even doing the same piece you've done in the past with a different setting and a different group of people, or it's just a new day. I mean, I think that's really exciting about the kind of work you do. Memories aren't just floating back of the one good time you had. Yeah. That's great to know. The, 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 the concept of, is it, 
earworm. Oh, way, yes, right? yes. So, so, yeah, it's not just a tune. To, to us, it's like huge sonic tapestries that stay with us until mm. the next rug is thrust into your ear. Um, so I, I'm working now on several different programs right now, and it's amazing how even though I'm looking at all of these scores, I'm still hearing the music from three or four days ago. Mm. So clearly I have to work harder to push that out to get into this next bit. There's so much to talk about. I, I want to bring up the fact that you didn't come from a musical family of generations past you. Your, your family was in the restaurant business, but you're working with the uh, New England Conservatory Youth Orchestra, Symphony, yeah. and these these are some of the up and coming stars of tomorrow, and they're just from all walks of life, from all parts of the world, I would imagine. And when you take a look at these kids doing what they're doing, some of them, does it really give you a sense of inspiration to think we are in good shape, knowing that we've got some of these musicians coming up? It's a blessing and a privilege to regularly be in front of of young musicians in training because they keep me young. Mm. We will investigate a piece of music. For me, it might be the 50th time, but for them, it is the first. And to always relive the first time with repertoire that I've known all my life helps keep me young at this. I, one thing I want to I add to, to the mix of what you just said, talking about these kids, because most of them won't be professional musicians. And... Um, uh, something about the New England Conservatory Preparatory School, where on a given Saturday, we have 13 youth orchestras, mm. 10 if you don't count the three Baroque youth orchestras. And the top four orchestras are full orchestras, and the top two orchestras are the touring orchestras. And I have the number two orchestra. So we get to travel uh, Europe and other places. And and uh, every other year, we do an international tour. And um, But it it is not my job, I feel, to make them professionals. Uh, one of my very early youth orchestra jobs, the matriarch of the board comes up to me um, and says at the end of this year, we just polled all the graduating seniors of your youth orchestra, and we have discovered that only 10% of them are going to go on to be professional musicians. Don't you think you failed? And mm. I was slack-jawed at the question, let alone the notion. And I said, uh, uh, yeah, I, I failed if that was the goal, but that's not the goal. What could possibly be the goal if it's not to make them professional music, musicians? Mm. I said, no, no, the goal is to instill in them a lifelong love of music that they can have with them no matter what they do, because it takes all kinds of people to make music happen, not just the music makers, the music receivers. I'd like to add the fact that I'm an amateur receiver. However, I know what I like and I know how it affects me. That that I could understand exactly where you're coming from. Instilling the love and the, uh, the connection, that feeling is what it's all about. I that, love that. That it is theirs all their life, however mm. they come to it. Uh, I'll share with you a quick story. There is, um, on, an, on, an, on an earlier conversation, we were talking about words that I don't, I try very hard not to say from the podium, specifically I and me. It's, you know, when we're working on something, you know, the composer needs this, the music requires this, the, 
the acoustic demands this, but it has nothing to do about one individual. It is all of us going through this, uh, trying to achieve this common goal. Uh, but there's one other word I never use in rehearsal, although I've heard other youth orchestra conductors use it. Um, and I only tell it one time as I am conveying a particular story. And that word is professional. And um, because I don't believe it's my job to make them professional musicians, it's to always raise their standard of playing. It's always their, raise their standard of execution and do it in as loving a way as possible that, they, that, that is a process that, they've, that they enjoy. But here's the story. I'll try to tell it quickly. Uh, years ago, I had the privilege of, of working at Tanglewood for 10 consecutive summers. And so we'd go to all sorts of uh, rehearsals, opened and closed. Well, there was one particular closed recital rehearsal by the famed cellist Misislav Rosopovich. And a friend of mine crashed his... It was a solo cello recital, so it was just Rosopovich on the stage. And my friend is like hiding in the seats and for the whole rehearsal, for a whole dress rehearsal. And he noticed that in one particular part of the music that um, Rostropovich got something incorrect. So he goes back and he repeats it and corrects it and then goes back and plays it again and again and again. So fast forward to that evening, the concert. And my friend goes backstage after the, a successful recital and he goes, Maestro Rostropovich, magnificent concert tonight, but I have, I, I have a confession. He goes, What's the, what could it be? Rostropovich asks, I snuck into your dress rehearsal and heard your entire dress rehearsal this afternoon. Oh, that's okay, he says. But I have a question about it. He goes, what? He goes, remember that one passage and you, you, you played it, I guess, incorrectly, and then you went back and you fixed it? And then you went back again and again. I counted. You went back 33 times. Why did you go back so many times when you got it correct the second time? And, and Rostropovich said, I wanted to guarantee that I would get it t correct tonight as well. And that's when it dawned on me in terms of professional musicians and amateur musicians. Amateurs practice until they get it right. And professionals practice until they can't get it wrong. Oh, yes. Yes. Well said. And so I, I do. That's the only time I use the word professional because I don't believe I'm in that business in terms of this particular youth orchestra. Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. uh, but, but it's important to know that sometimes when we go back to repeat something, it's not because I want it to go well for myself. I want to make sure it goes well for them when it's time to do it in the concert. They say that uh, conductors, and it's true based on unscientific knowledge and observation, have a long lifespan. What do you attribute that to? A lot of arm movement? Or First what? of all, I'm banking on it. And, <laughs> and second of all, I mean, uh, the whole idea of up, that upper cardiovascular upper workout. Upper cardio. Uh, so maybe, hopefully. You're destined to be doing this for many, many decades to come in that case because you love it, don't you? I do. I do. Um, again, you, you hear that old adage, if you love what you do for a living, you'll never work a day in your life. And that's baloney. I work really hard, and mm. all my colleagues, we work really hard. It's just that it's good work, mm. you know, and it makes sense to do this. And, and um, I also know that I don't want to be a conductor that everyone says stayed on the podium too long. Mm. 
And by the way, that's not going to happen for a long time. I hope that's not going to happen for a long time. But I hope I have the clarity and the wisdom to understand to step down while strong, not step down on the decline. Um, so when that might be, I have no idea. But I just hope I'm smart enough to, to, to see it. Well, you're delivering something very special whenever you take to the podium and you have an orchestra, whether it be in Plymouth or the New England Conservatory crew or any number of other orchestras. You leave us a, a lasting gift of beautiful music and passion for that music. So it's wonderful to see you again. It is so cool to get back together again. Yeah. let's. I mean, we don't have to do this on mic all the time, but I'll meet you for a cup of tea <laughs> every once in a while. How about that? Amazing teacher, maestro, rabbi, the same thing at all. Absolutely. Of uh, the Plymouth Philharmonic. <laughs> and uh, as you can see, he's got no sense of humor. Stephen Cardionis, thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. What a pleasure. On Mike with Jordan Rich is produced at Chart Productions in Boston with technical assistance from Dan Tebow at Fast Twitch Media. Always appreciate those of you who subscribe regularly and download this podcast. And if you get a chance to review the podcast on Apple, I'd certainly appreciate that as well. Looking forward to our next get-together for great conversation. This is Jordan saying, as always, be well so you can do some good. Take care.